If you've enjoyed our show, it's probably because you love a good scandal. Well, the episodes I'm about to play for you today are filled with captivating scandals, as is the show therefrom, Crimes of Passion. So if you like what you hear, be sure to follow Crimes of Passion free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, this is one Spotify original from Parcast you do not want to miss. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was a breezy spring day in Paris on March 16, 1914. But inside the offices of the newspaper Le Figaro, things were considerably more stifling. Louis Lazarus sat hunched over his typewriter, hard at work editing the next issue. Lately, their circulation had been declining, and his editor-in-chief, Gaston Calmet, was adamant Louis churn out more compelling pieces. Louis thought bitterly on Gaston's recent change in attitude. For years, he had been so charming, He threw elaborate parties for his associates and, despite a less-than-aristocratic background, had always modeled himself as the pinnacle of respectability. Louis had admired the man for his integrity and refinement. But that had all changed a few months ago when Gaston suddenly announced a vicious campaign against a left-leaning member of parliament, Joseph Caillou. Since then, He had insisted Louis frame articles on Caillou with an aggressive, denigrating tone. This morning, Louis could hardly bring himself to even speak to Gaston about an article. By the time he finally plucked up the courage, they were interrupted. A mysterious woman was here to see Gaston. Immediately, rumors flew around the office over her identity. Louis ignored the rumors and sat tensely, waiting for the opportunity to confront Gaston. Around him, hushed chattering grew to loud speculation as Gaston led the woman into his office. Then, suddenly, a gunshot. The secretary reacted before anyone else. She peered into the office and screamed. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a podcast original. 
The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we're covering the feud between French politician Joseph Caillou and newspaper editor Gaston Calmet. In the early 20th century, Calmet took to the pages of Le Figaro to call out Caillou's blatant hypocrisy and supposed corruption, trying to poison public opinion against him. Next week, we'll understand how Joseph Caillou's wife, Henriette, got involved in the squabble. They eventually became each other's only allies as the rest of society closed in around them. Joseph Caillou was born on March 30, 1863, in Lumont, France. His father, Eugène, was a politician in the French parliament. He insisted on wielding full authority in and outside the house, and therefore was very strict with his son. Conversely, Joseph's mother, Anna, was a loving woman who doted on him. As a result, Joseph grew up resenting his father and clinging to his mother. Anna once wrote that Joseph was the sole ray of sunshine in her life. She spoiled her favorite son and protected him from his father's tyranny. For his part, Joseph felt that his mother was the only person who truly appreciated him, and he devoted himself to protecting her. Thanks to his conflicting personal relationships, Joseph also felt a divide within himself. To the average person, he took pains to appear as genteel and sophisticated as possible. He looked down on those who came from poor backgrounds and relished any opportunity to demonstrate his refined taste. If anyone offended him or made him feel slightly inadequate, he snapped at them with fanatical fury. His sudden fits of rage were completely at odds with his otherwise gentlemanly manners. They gave the impression that there were two different Josephs. Some have even theorized that Joseph suffered from bipolar disorder. Before I continue with Joseph's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Bipolar disorder is a condition that causes an individual's moods to swing between highly active periods of mania and severe depression. According to clinical psychologist Dr. Greg Enriquez, the mania can inspire euphoria and powerful confidence, but the agonizing depression usually lasts much longer. 
effects of the disorder begin to show themselves during young adulthood, but signs can also appear earlier. Friends of Joseph recalled times that he appeared to be feverishly upset, on the verge of breaking down in tears from an insult or a stressful situation. Then, only a few moments later, he would collect himself and confidently handle a situation as if nothing had ever bothered him at all. But instead of raising any concerns over his mental health, these incidents caused many to be impressed with his self-control. After witnessing such a sudden turnaround, one friend remarked that Joseph was capable of restraining himself with an astonishing self-mastery. Though bipolar disorder does result in mood swings, these changing emotions are not typically so short-lived. In addition, individuals suffering from the disorder do not usually have strong control over their temperaments during mood episodes. Judging by contemporary descriptions of Joseph as a man who could often calm himself down at will, it's possible he was not bipolar and simply had a reactionary personality. Still, it's undeniable that he suffered from bouts of depression often brought about by confrontations with his father. It is possible that after years of living under his domineering thumb, Joseph developed a talent for acting more in control than he actually was to avoid Eugène's wrath. Whatever influenced Joseph's moods, it gave rise to a man distinctly conflicted about who he was. He defied his father's wishes by refusing to become an engineer. Instead, he studied law and finance, graduating in 1886 at the age of 23. Despite refusing to study what his father wanted, he then followed directly in Eugène's footsteps and entered politics. Thanks to his father's connections, Joseph got a job in the finance ministry in the town of Sartre, less than 10 miles away from his hometown of Lumas. He worked there diligently for years, earning accolades for his intelligence and astute grasp of financial minutiae. Then, in 1896, after a decade in the ministry, Eugène Calmet passed away. Joseph did not mourn the loss of his father. He had never developed a good relationship with the man. Eugène's constant criticisms had loomed over him for years. His death didn't make Joseph happy, but in some ways, it lifted a weight off his shoulders. But when his mother Anna died two years later, things were different. Gone was his strongest source of emotional support and the only woman who he felt understood him. He felt as if the best parts of himself had disappeared. Now 35, Joseph continued to be successful in his work at the ministry, but didn't have much strength of belief in his politics or many emotional attachments. In search of something to latch onto after his mother's death, Joseph found a mentor in the new prime minister of France, Pierre Waldeck Rousseau. Pierre was impressed by Joseph's knowledge of fiscal matters. Over time, Pierre came to trust him, and though Joseph had no high-level government experience, Pierre made 36-year-old Joseph his minister of finance in 1899. Like his father and the prime minister, Joseph continued to embrace conservative principles, but he was never sure he fully believed in them. And unfortunately, 
further career success didn't fill the emptiness in his life. He decided it was time to pursue a romantic relationship in order to fill that void. And the years before he passed away, his father had always lampooned his single lifestyle. Perhaps in an attempt at rebellion, Joseph had defiantly remained a bachelor. But now that his father was gone, Joseph wondered if he had been right after all. As a politician, he regularly went to fashionable parties around Paris in search of power and influence. Now he kept his eyes open for potential mates. This brought him to Berta Dupree in 1901. She was a lively socialite, a beautiful host, and her parties were highly sought after among the Parisian elite. She and Joseph began a passionate courtship that lasted for years. The only problem was, Berta was married to another politician. Joseph found that the sporadic emotional support from the relationship was enough for him and he was content to keep the affair going. Berta, on the other hand, had a crisis of conscience. She wanted to divorce her husband and, against Joseph's advice, ended her marriage in 1904. Joseph was still hesitant to tie the knot, but decided he couldn't abandon a woman who had divorced her husband for him. So he married Berta in 1906, though he later admitted that he doubted the union would last. Around this time, he made some other big changes in his life. Lately, he had grown frustrated with the conservative faction of the government. He was initially attracted to the conservative party because of his upbringing and background in financial matters. He was in favor of controlled government spending, but as the years went by, he ran up against more and more opposition from conservative legislators. They seemed content to leave things as they were and were loath to make any changes at all, even ones he felt were in line with their principles. For example, Joseph felt that France should implement an income tax, like other countries, to provide a much-needed source of funding for government programs. It was in line with his ideals of a fiscally sound public policy. But many older conservative politicians who were rich themselves balked at the idea of an income tax. They decried him as a traitor and announced it was unfrench to disclose one's income to the government. Joseph found himself getting closer and closer to reaching an impasse with his fellow conservative party members. But it wasn't just his policies that separated him from his colleagues. He continued to erupt in sporadic temper tantrums and gained a reputation for being overly emotional. At the time, it was considered unseemly and feminine for a man to show too much emotion. His inability to appear stoic and detached at all times was seized upon by his critics who called him womanish and vain. Their case was bolstered by Joseph's unusual way of dressing. In the state environment of the finance ministry, a politician's wardrobe was expected to be as blasé and muted as his disposition. While most men confined themselves to wearing unflattering black suits, Joseph took extreme pride in his appearance. Joseph adjusted his tie and brushed off the sleeves of his jacket. They called him a dandy simply because he took the time to dress well and invest in his personal hygiene. As if it was effeminate to introduce some color into your wardrobe. He snapped his cufflinks on and examined himself in the mirror. 
He looked immaculate. Well, who cared what they had to say anyway? He certainly got enough compliments outside of the ministry to make up for the dirty looks from his colleagues. To Joseph, all those old men and their loose black suits were just grumpy, unreasonable fossils like his father. He loved to walk by them, swishing his perfectly tailored coats. They rode him off without even knowing him. They squabbled over decorum while he actually tried to get laws passed. Also unlike them, he looked toward the future. As he stood alone in his bedroom, he stewed over his critics. The thought of their fat faces and unkempt mustaches made him sick. He clenched his fists as his face reddened. One day, he would show them. They would all be silenced, even the nagging voice of his father, which had not gone away even after his death. Joseph vowed one day his critics would regret calling him womanish. He was more of a man than any of them. Joseph became so furious, he actually shook with rage, but the sound of a knock at his front door forced him to calm down. He cleared his throat and straightened his trousers. By the time he walked down the hall and turned the knob, he was a new man and greeted his visitor with a smile and restrained charm. Though he occasionally showed flashes of temper, Joseph worked hard to contain himself. He was an expert at hiding the parts of himself he didn't want anyone else to see. After all, he had more than his emotions to conceal. Less than a year into his marriage to Berta, another woman had caught his attention, a woman who would eventually go to violent lengths to protect him. Coming up, Joseph engages in his next love affair. Now, back to the story. In 1907, 44-year-old Joseph Caillou's life was one of contradictions. Outwardly, he was a newly married, highly successful politician, but underneath his calm, refined veneer, there lurked a violent temper. His temper was made worse by his compulsive cheating. Though he and Berta had been married less than a year, Joseph had already begun another affair. His chronic cheating may have been a sign of narcissism. According to psychotherapist Dr. Stephanie A. Sarkis, it's common for narcissists to be unfaithful in relationships. She explained, Narcissists have a bottomless pit of need. They are always looking for someone to fill that pit. However, no matter how much you give up for the narcissist and focus all your attention on them, they will still cheat. That certainly seemed to be the case for Joseph. Despite Berta lavishing love and attention on him, he gave his heart to 33-year-old Henriette Clarity. Henriette was, as she liked to say, a bourgeoisie. She grew up wealthy and married young to a writer 12 years older than her. Almost immediately after the nuptials, the two grew apart, but Henriette stayed in the marriage to avoid the stigma of divorce. She adored her two children, but remained distant from her husband and unhappy with her life. 
the passionate and fashionable Joseph Caillou offered her both companionship and excitement. Like her, he was proud to be from the upper class. The two enjoyed the intrigue of sleeping together behind their spouses' backs and often dreamed of a greater future together, one free of her boring husband and Joseph's annoying wife. He confided to Henriette that he had tired of Berta's extroverted personality and how he wished he had met Henriette first. The two of them giggled as they held each other, exchanging denigrating pillow talk about their spouses. <laughs> the obvious pleasure Joseph took in lying to Berta is sometimes referred to as the cheater's high. Selfish narcissists are especially prone to chasing the cheater's high. A recent study led by researcher Nicole Rudy found that cheating triggers a positive neural response. Additionally, psychotherapist Dr. Robert Weiss wrote, the results fly in the face of the long-held belief that unethical behavior triggers bad feelings in most people. Instead, people may, in fact, enjoy the process of getting away with something thanks to built-in neurobiological rewards of excitement and arousal. In Joseph's case, these feelings were possibly further intensified by his natural tendency toward passionate emotions. Since he often experienced extremes of temper, he may have found it harder than the average person to resist the excitement of a new tryst. But despite his practice in emotional control, Joseph apparently still hadn't perfected the art of getting away with infidelity. In 1908, Berta caught him sneaking into the house late several nights in a row. She knew how Joseph acted when he was up to no good. After all, only a year ago, he had been sneaking around with her. Berta had heard all of Joseph's excuses before. Berta finally cornered Joseph as he slipped in the front door one night. In the face of her accusations, he immediately folded and apologized. Then, he employed all of his powers of self-control and politician's charm. He told Berta that Henriette meant nothing to him and swore that he would stop seeing her. After he promised to break it off, Berta forgave her husband. Meanwhile, Henriette had no intention of giving up on Joseph. She was willing to do whatever it took to keep Joseph for herself. She divorced her husband and urged Joseph to get rid of Berta too. When Berta realized a few months later that the affair was still going on, she cornered Joseph and screamed in his face, threatening to ruin his political career. This time, Joseph claimed she was being paranoid. He said he and Henriette were only friends now. When Berta pressed the issue further, he became furious. Joseph was not interested in a discussion with his nuisance of a wife. He screamed for Berta to leave the room and slammed the door behind her. He sat down on his bed with his head in his hands, struggling to contain his rage. He had known this marriage was doomed from the start. Why had he ever agreed to it? And now he was trapped. He couldn't leave Berta. There was a parliamentary election coming up. A divorce would damage his reputation, which had already suffered enough after poaching another man's wife. 
Joseph couldn't allow another scandal in his private life to leak to the media. He had grand ambitions. He was determined to be a uniting force in parliament. Some conservative legislators still respected his financial expertise, and the more liberal politicians had accepted him with open arms. He knew he had the potential to be the most powerful man in French politics. But now, Berta wanted to ruin everything he had worked for by airing their dirty laundry in public. He abruptly stood up and began pacing around the bedroom. He could hear Berta listening outside and it drove him mad. He pounded on the door and told her if she didn't leave immediately and stop her crazy accusations, he would kill her. She scampered off and he pulled himself together. Why couldn't she just leave him alone? Who cared who he was with when she wasn't around? He went back to pacing, clenching his fists until his knuckles turned white. There had to be a way out of this. There was no problem he couldn't solve. Eventually, he had an idea. He sprinted over to his desk and sat down. Joseph's idea, as usual, was to engage in deeper deception. He forged several letters to make the affair look completely platonic. Then he left the letters in his top drawer and kept it halfway open the next morning. Berta found the letters, but wasn't as easily fooled as Joseph had hoped. She knew her husband, and one of his most prominent qualities was his attention to detail. He didn't leave the house without checking multiple times to make sure he didn't forget something. A man who never even left a stray hair out of place certainly wouldn't forget to close his private drawer on accident. Berta left the counterfeit letters alone and bided her time to retaliate. A few days later, she ventured back into Joseph's study. Now, the top drawer was locked. She broke the lock and found a stash of real love letters between Joseph and Henriette. There was no way Joseph could lie his way out of the predicament now. In the letters, Henriette called him the single bright spot in her life. She also begged him to divorce Berta as soon as he could. As soon as Joseph got home that night, Berta confronted him with her newfound evidence. Left with few other options, he fell to his knees in tears. He crawled to Berta and begged for her forgiveness. He claimed his words to Henriette were just to seduce her. He only truly loved Berta and always had. Then he reminded her that he had an election coming up. With tears still flowing, he asked Berta to find it in her heart to put off thoughts of a divorce. He swore to be faithful from now on, as long as she showed her trust in him by burning the letters. Berta couldn't deny that she still loved him and wanted to fight for him. Against her better judgment, she agreed to burn the letters. But first, she wanted a second honeymoon, and Joseph had to cut off contact with Henriette. Of course, Joseph's promises were nothing more than desperate ploys. He couldn't afford to be divorced in an election year. It would be seen as impropriety by the average voter and affect his popularity with religious constituents. Behind his wife's back, 
he continued to see Henriette. He also hired a detective to follow Berta and probe her private life. The detective followed her during the day everywhere she went and sometimes watched the house at night. Joseph hoped to find some dirt on her that he could use to prevent her from blackmailing him in the future. But there was nothing to find. However, he did manage to convince Berta of his renewed commitment to their relationship. Berta saw her husband's entire personality change. He was suddenly more considerate and attentive to her needs. She was suspicious at first, but eventually won over by how repentant he seemed. By the time he was re-elected to the French parliament in 1910, Berta felt they had reached a new period of bliss in their relationship. Then, almost immediately after the election, 47-year-old Joseph divorced her. This startling lack of empathy and the ability to use others and toss them aside are more indications that Joseph may have been a narcissist. Therapist Bill Eddy points out that in relationships, narcissists feel superior, demand special treatment, and do not feel remorse about taking advantage of others. Throughout his life, Joseph had climbed the social and financial ladder by leaning into his narcissism. Berta was livid with her ex-husband. She had been manipulated again and again by Joseph, and yet somehow never saw the end coming. Worst of all, she had no way to get revenge. She could leak news of Joseph's affair with Henriette to the press, but worried it would only make her look foolish. To the public, it would seem like she had been unable to satisfy two husbands in a row. Her reputation would be ruined. Instead, she seethed in silence and waited for the right opportunity to take Joseph down. Thanks to Berta's silence, the divorce didn't make many headlines. Meanwhile, Joseph consolidated his power in parliament. By making strategic deals with a number of the more liberal factions, Joseph emerged with their support as a force to be reckoned with. His center-left views made him the perfect, palatable face for French politics. By the next year, he was more powerful than ever. In 1911, 48-year-old Joseph had finally amassed the constituency he had been chasing for years. That year, he was elected Prime Minister of France. Once again, as soon as he was safe from political fallout, he had no qualms making changes to his personal life. In October of 1911, he married Henriette. They both had considerable assets from their families, making them one of the wealthiest couples in France at the time, and one of the most famous. But after the wedding to Henriette, Joseph's luck finally ran out. He found himself embroiled in a political scandal. In 1911, France sent a mass of troops to Morocco. Germany objected to this, accusing the French of expanding their territory in colonized Africa and refused to let the French expand without winning concessions of their own. To avoid conflict, Caillou negotiated with Germany and granted them territory in Congo and other areas of Africa. Though he successfully avoided war, 
he made mistakes during the negotiations. The first involved secret German communications. French intelligence had broken Germany's encryption, so they knew ahead of time which proposals were accepted or rejected by German leadership. During one conversation, Joseph let his foreknowledge slip, alerting the Germans that their code had been broken. They soon changed their encryption, costing the French valuable intel. A more serious mistake came to light later. Rather than holding all talks through the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Joseph used some business associates to communicate with Germany without the knowledge of the French president. This was seized upon by his political enemies, who argued that his carelessness had put French national security at risk. Joseph was forced to resign as prime minister in January of 1912. The forced resignation was difficult for Joseph to take. He had never faced that kind of public vitriol before. He seethed from the injustice. He felt he had been instrumental in avoiding war with Germany. He knew his attackers didn't really care that he had used unofficial channels for the talks. It was all a cynical ploy designed to call his integrity into question. Without his work, Joseph was lost. He knew he could never be prime minister again after the Moroccan debacle. He had nothing left to strive for. In the months following his resignation, he retreated into the arms of Henriette. She truly loved him and was as angry as he was at the attacks on his character. She convinced him to re-enter public life and he resolved never to let his enemies win. Less than a year later, Joseph ran for parliament again. Though he could no longer be prime minister, he could wield his influence as a lawmaker. His financial expertise was undoubtable, and on the strength of this, he was re-elected in 1913. But his biggest scandals were still to follow. Coming up, Joseph finds a new enemy in newspaper editor, Gaston Calmet. Now, back to the story. By the end of 1913, the conservative government had been unseated in the French parliament. 50-year-old Joseph Calmet was once again appointed as Minister of Finance and had a lot of power in parliament, but he still had enemies. As World War I loomed, political opponents worried that Joseph would again pursue an income tax to help pay for future military expansion. One of the most public voices to come out against Joseph after he became Minister of Finance was journalist Gaston Calmet. Calmet came from a middle-class background, but quickly advanced up the ranks at the newspaper Le Figaro, thanks to a talent for earning for powerful friends. These aspirations could be seen from the very beginning of his tenure with the newspaper. He quickly endeared himself to the editor-in-chief by blowing his entire first month's salary on a dinner party. The editor, Francis Magnard, thought the move showed panache. Francis took him under his wing and cleared the way for his rapid promotion. Gaston, continued growing his influence by forming a series of strategic friendships that ensured he had friends in high places. He earned the title of editor-in-chief in 1901 
at the relatively young age of 43. With this power, Gaston increased circulation of the newspaper, focusing on recruiting rich and powerful conservatives in Paris as subscribers. It is perhaps these powerful men who encourage Gaston to go after Joseph Caillou with such ferocity. At Gaston's direction, Le Figaro published over a hundred negative articles and cartoons about Joseph in the span of only a few months. They ranged from throwaway gossip to full-blown exposés, alleging Joseph was immoral, a thief, and incompetent. The paper accused Joseph of using his connections to make anti-French foreigners wealthy. With no evidence, Le Figaro repeatedly asserted that Joseph made shady deals behind the scenes. When these attacks yielded no fruit, Gaston refocused on the Moroccan crisis of 1911. Articles stated that Joseph made secret deals with Germany during his closed-door negotiations. The rumor seized on the real gaffe and expanded it into a full-blown conspiracy. The articles questioned Joseph's patriotism, implying that he had a secret alliance with Germany. Dredging up his embarrassing resignation was one thing, but to do so nearly every day in a widely circulated newspaper incited Joseph's rage. Henriette tried to calm him down, but it was no use. It seemed nothing less than Gaston's death would satisfy him. Joseph stalked the halls of Parliament with a perpetual scowl on his face. He mopped his forehead with a monogrammed handkerchief and did his best to control his fury. He could feel his heart pounding and the vein in his forehead pulsing. How dare they write such trash about him? It was nonsense, all of it. After decades of public service, how could some preening journalist have the gall to question his patriotism? He had finally had enough of these bad faith muckrakers. How much could one man be expected to take? For God's sake, they had even started attacking his family. He thought of Henriette and how she had stayed by his side throughout the whole Moroccan affair. Did Gaston Calmet have any idea what he was doing? Joseph entered his office and sat with his head in his hands. Gaston Calmet was supposed to be a man of class, but he was nothing more than a bumbling sycophant. He would have to be taught a lesson by any means necessary. Joseph leaned on his wife, Henriette, for support. She too was offended by the articles, particularly as they had taken on a more and more personal tone each week. Lately, Calmet had even started to publish articles implying that he had secrets about Joseph's private life. In tantalizing language, these stories questioned Joseph's moral capacity to govern the French people. The veiled threats made Henriette and Joseph worried. Did Gaston have access to the letters they'd written to each other during their affair? If word of their infidelities got out, it could irreparably damage Joseph's political reputation. Though the political attacks had not damaged his influence in Parliament so far, they set the stage for a more damaging scandal. 
It wouldn't be difficult to turn the common people against Joseph if word got out that he had left his wife to marry his mistress. Unfortunately for Joseph and Henriette, they had little recourse against Gaston. France had a strong tradition of a free press, and while they could sue Le Figaro for libel, it was a lengthy process. And in the meantime, Gaston could continue publishing whatever he wanted, including the affair letters. In any case, a libel suit would have failed. The letters were authentic. Unlike other accusations Gaston had made about Joseph's political loyalties, the affair between Henriette and Joseph could not be denied. The more Joseph and Henriette thought about it, the more hopeless their situation became. Henriette's concern shifted from her husband's reputation to her own. A sexually immoral man may be seen as unfit to govern, but a sexually immoral woman could be cast out of society altogether. In France at the time, a woman's chastity was seen as her highest virtue. For an upper-class woman like Henriette, the public humiliation seemed too much to bear. Humiliation can be a powerful motivator. Dr. Neil Burton points out a subtle difference between embarrassment and humiliation. He writes, Whereas we bring embarrassment upon ourselves, humiliation is something that is brought upon us by others. While Henriette may have been embarrassed by her own infidelity, the thing she truly feared was humiliation at the hands of Gaston. Dr. Burton continued, Severe humiliation can be seen as a fate worse than death in that it destroys our reputation as well as our life, whereas death merely destroys our life. This is the kind of humiliation Henriette feared, and it left her in shambles, reducing her to fits of tears, upsetting Joseph all the more. She talked about attempting suicide. Joseph desperately appealed to the few friends he had in Parliament to see if any of them had sway over Gaston, but to no avail. Finally, it seemed like there were no legitimate options. Incensed by Gaston's continued personal attacks and threats to release more letters, Joseph told Henriette he was going to bash his face in. He would challenge Gaston to a duel to defend his honor. More than likely, Joseph saw himself as a noble hero in this scenario. The prospect of defending one's pride or honor often feels noble, but according to author and therapist Dr. John Amadeo, this defensive impulse is driven by shame. He wrote, Pride is often driven by poor self-worth. We feel so badly about ourselves that we compensate by feeling superior. We look for others' flaws as a way to conceal our own. If Joseph's self-worth was really that poor, it would have had its roots in his relationship with his father. A lack of approval from Eugène could have pushed him to seek validation in illicit relationships with women. Then, when his secret shame about his chronic cheating was triggered by Gaston's magazine articles, his pride led him to consider resorting to violence. The prospect gave Henriette nightmares. She couldn't help imagining her husband's bloody and broken body. She couldn't bear the thought of him leaving her behind. And even if he won the duel, it would be just as bad. 
he would still lose his job and would likely be arrested. Each thought was worse than the last, each scenario more morbid. She shuddered as she contemplated her impossible situation. She would have to resort to less sophisticated means of retribution. On March 16, 1914, Henriette came to a fateful decision. At 3 p.m., she entered an expensive gun shop in Paris. According to the clerk, she approached him immediately and said, I am Madame Caillou, and I want to see a revolver. Her face impassive, she claimed she was going on a trip with her husband and wanted a small weapon for protection. She appeared completely calm and courteous, dressed extravagantly in a dress meant for a fancy afternoon tea. She had plans to meet a friend for lunch. The clerk had her try an unloaded revolver, but she had trouble getting it to work. She was escorted down to a basement firing range where she again attempted to use a revolver, but it bruised her finger. Apparently, a lifetime of high society parties had not prepared her to use a gun, even a small one. Next, an employee brought her a Browning automatic pistol, which was a bit easier to use. She emptied a magazine into a human-shaped target at the range. As she fired, she imagined the smug face of Gaston Calmet exploding in front of her. It made her feel good. Though her hands shook, she hit three of her six shots. More than enough. Satisfied, she headed back to the register and purchased the gun. She asked for it to be loaded. The clerk told her that was against the shop rules, but Henriette wasn't one to take no for an answer, especially not today. Eventually, she berated the clerk into showing her how to load it herself inside the shop. Madame Caillou hurried from the gun shop into the back seat of her fancy car. She snapped the loaded magazine into place, turned the safety on, and slipped her new weapon into her handbag. Henriette knew she had reached a crucial turning point. She still wasn't sure what she was going to tell her driver. Would she go on to meet her friend for afternoon tea, or would she confront her enemy, Gaston Calmet? She could hear her heartbeat in her ears. Her hands shook and she clasped them tightly around her purse. Then she felt faint. For a moment, it seemed to her that she lost all control. When the driver turned to her, she could hardly even hear her own voice. It was as if someone else was speaking. Someone else was ordering him to go to the offices of Le Figaro. Someone else was telling him to step on it. As the car sped down the street, Henriette's uncertain expression hardened into a satisfied smirk. She was close to ending it all now. Gaston Calmet would pay for dragging her name through the mud. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of Gaston Calmet and Joseph Caillou's feud. We'll discuss how Henriette took her revenge and the unprecedented trial that followed. 
You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion is written by Terrell Wells. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>